Hey, thanks for joining us. If at any point you would like prayer, you would like to take a next step or learn more about our church, visit our website. That's wordoflifeag.org. Make sure you're following us on Instagram and Facebook too to join the conversation happening online. This week's message is all about communion as Pastor Tom wraps up a two-week mini-series. Let's jump right in. Good morning. How are we doing, everybody? We glad we're here. Come on, how good was that story? The, uh, I mean, come on, let's hear it one more time. That was an incredible video, incredible story. My favorite bit is that the guy doing the baptizing was Luke's dad. Come on, somebody, how cool is that? Very cool. Well, um, as already been mentioned, part of service today, uh, next weekend is not a typical weekend. It is going to be a very special farewell service. Um, Pastor Randy, Marianne, as they get ready to um, head into retirement, uh, well-deserved retirement, I think we would all agree. Um, I'm not planning on crying next week, and neither should you, and we'll all be disappointed together. But that's all happening next weekend, so please be here. Be a part of that. Make it a priority. It's going to be a wonderful weekend. Hopefully, you can be a part of it. Last weekend, we started uh, what ended up being a two-week one-two punch mini-series on the subject of communion. So they started last week. Um, We looked specifically at Passover and how that helped inform how uh, uh, the Last Supper, how communion, how it was going to go. And the truth is, if you start to dig into the subject of communion, you'll find that there are libraries worth of material that you could go into. There is no shortage um, of, of things that different authors have had to say, different writers, different scholars, different academics, different experts, church history. There's so much that could be said. And my hope has always been, as we've considered this over last weekend and then again today, is that there's going to be something that's helpful for us. So that's kind of been my, my hope, is that as we start thinking about communion, what it means, why it's significant, why we should care about it, Why for 2,000 years this tradition has not just fallen off, but has continued and remains an important part of our time together as believers. It's something that we celebrate regularly. Why is it important? My hope is to be able to find something helpful with that. So last week we spent some time, we looked at uh, what happened in Exodus 12 as the Passover happened. And the Hebrews were given instructions about how to celebrate this annually. And then when Jesus comes and he starts telling the disciples and starts initiating and starting what we now call today communion or the Lord's Supper, it was done with the backdrop of Passover. And there's a bunch of lessons to learn from that. And what we took from last week is that the bread, it signified a fresh start. It was made without leaven. There was no leftovers built into this batch of bread. This was fresh bread made with fresh ingredients. There was no leftovers. This was a new chapter. It was a fresh start. And then the cups of wine, they represented fulfilled promises. That God made promises to Moses that he fulfilled as he delivered the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt. It represents fulfilled promises. And then the blood of the lamb that was put on the doorpost represents escaping judgment. Escaping judgment, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because we have said, you know what, we're putting our faith in the blood of the lamb and how that teaches us that as we put our faith and trust in Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, that we too also get to escape judgment. And then as a part of this and the way that we uh, remember uh, Passover and indeed communion, it teaches us that we belong to something much bigger than ourselves. We belong to a family of faith. We belong to a community of believers. 
and that this means that our lives are joined to something far bigger than ourselves, that the story of Jesus precedes us, and it will live long after us into eternity, but we are a part of something much bigger than ourselves, and there is a really, really good reason to have all the hope in the world that God is in control of this. His fulfilled promises from the Exodus, from Passover, that first Passover, and as we keep looking forward and we keep remembering that God is true to His Word, God is all about fulfilled promises, that gives us every good reason to have hope. So last week, this was summarized in communion teaches us that we're welcomed into God's story of hope and freedom. And this week, we're going to dial forward about 20 years from when Jesus first celebrated this and first had this moment with the 12 disciples in the upper room. And we're going to fast forward about 20 years to Corinth, which is a Greek city. And the Apostle Paul had gone there, had started a church. He spent about 18 months there working with the church, building the church, teaching the church, giving them instructions about how they're to run and function as a community of faith, how they're to function as a church. And the church is made up of mostly Greek people, but there were clearly some Jewish people that were a part of the church that had believed, put their faith in Jesus. And uh, we even see that Paul refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. And Paul, he'd left Corinth, this city in Greece, where he'd established this church and spent a decent amount of time teaching the church. He'd left there to go and continue his work of starting and planting and establishing churches all over the Roman Empire. And he's in Ephesus when he gets word from Corinth. The churches that Paul started, they would stay in touch and they would continue to communicate about how they're going through letters or messengers. And Paul had got word, either by letter or a messenger, uh, while he was in Ephesus, someone from Corinth, uh, specifically from what we know as the household of Chloe. If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see this from Chloe's household pop up now and again. And what that's understood to be is that there was a, a lady, Chloe, who was possibly a pastoral figure of a church, a leader of a church, or perhaps it was her home that the church met. But this lady, Chloe, is that from her household, people had let Paul know there are things happening in the church that shouldn't be happening. And they give Paul somewhat of a laundry list of problems that are happening in the church in Corinth. So Paul, he's, he's away, he's in Ephesus, and he's getting this information from one of these churches from Chloe's household saying, Paul, this is what's going on. And one of the experts that I read this week identified 11 problems that the church in Corinth is facing. And how the church was taking communion was one of them. So Paul, as we get into this passage, it's important to keep in mind that Paul is addressing a long list of problems, a list of 11 problems, and he takes his time. It's not a short letter, 1 Corinthians, but through this letter, Paul is addressing these 11 problems that the folks in Chloe's household have raised and said, hey, Paul, we got problems. And Paul says, okay, we're going to address these. We're going to direct this head on. And Paul in this letter is blunt, he's direct, and he's focused on fixing the problems. And so he writes the following passage to help correct the church on how they've been partaking in communion. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read this from chapter 11, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. More harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear there are divisions among you. When you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. Now, Paul addresses the divisions in the church. Earlier in his letter, there are people who had preferred leaders, and there were theological differences, and Paul addresses this early in the letter, but he's pointing back to that at this point. 
Verse 19, but of course there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. Now this is a little dig, it's not too subtle, but he's saying those of you that are living a godly lifestyle should be distinct and separated and it should be noticeable from people who are not. But it's not about having a division over things that are driven by selfishness or greed or anything like that. So Paul goes on, and we're going to get to the rest of this in just a moment, but I wanted to set this up for you. So Paul goes on to explain why more harm than good is happening when they get together specifically around communion. But there's important things to keep in mind as we dig into this. And one of the things they taught us in Bible college is that the New Testament letters, a good way to think about them is that we have the transcript of one half of a phone call. Because this is ongoing communication between the churches and Paul, and we don't have what the churches are sending to Paul. We have what Paul and the other New Testament writers, especially of the letters and the epistles, are sending back to them. We have these. And so the experts will try and discern and try and decipher and try and piece together what's in the letters of Paul to understand what are the problems that the churches are bringing to him. And so specifically in 1 Corinthians, I believe there's a, a rather widely accepted consensus among the experts, among the scholars. I don't believe this is something that they debate. But when you think about uh, communion specifically in 1 Corinthians, in Corinth, um, there were big problems and a lot of it was socioeconomical. You would have the wealthier members of the church would be able to turn up to the church meeting whenever they pleased because they had no responsibilities because they were wealthy and they had everyone doing all the stuff for them. And then you had the poorer members of the church who couldn't get there until later into the evening because they were working all day. And so what would happen is that the wealthier members of the church, they would turn up for church, ready to have communion, celebrate the Lord's Supper, and they would treat it like a normal Greek feast. And instead of treating it as something that is sacred, something that is important, something that is a vital moment of a worship service, a chance to connect with God in a powerful way, a chance to pull together in that family setting that we talked about last week. Instead, it was just a normal Greek feast. So they ate like there was no tomorrow, and they got drunk out of their brains, and then by the time the poorer people turned up, they're just looking, what have I walked into? This is not the Last Supper that Jesus initiated. They were treating it just like any other Greek feast that you would see people happening, and it was the poorer members of the church that were missing out. And so Paul... He starts addressing this by saying that this weird, mutated version of communion was doing more harm than good. And he goes on to address what's going on. So we're going to read this. So keep in mind that this is what's been reported to Paul. The rich people are getting together and they're treating this just like any other feast. And they're getting drunk. And, and, and you know, all this is happening. Meanwhile, the poorer members are turning up and they're feeling left out and isolated. No one quite knows what to do. And there's no sign of Jesus being glorified in any of it. Paul goes into verse 20, when you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some grow hungry, while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. So here's Paul, you guys are doing more harm than good. On the one half of the phone call, we see that there's disunity, there's selfishness, there's childishness, there's little value of godliness or integrity, there's a casual approach to faith, there's a casual approach to worship services, greed and selfishness has ruined this time that should be deeply meaningful. And the rich members of the church show up with no concern for the poorer members. 
And consequently, they've disgraced the Lord's Supper, is what we've just read from Paul. And they show an indifference to the cross and the message of Jesus. And the church didn't have God's love for people. And because of all this, when they gathered in the name of communion, they did more harm than good. So to address the problem, remember, 1 Corinthians is a Paul directly addressing these problems that have been brought to his attention. So to address this problem, Paul repeats what we originally would have taught about communion. He doesn't add anything. He doesn't go into greater detail. He doesn't amplify anything. He just repeats what he would have shared about we're going to do communion. We're going to approach the Lord's Supper like this. So verse 23, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. But Paul is saying to the church in Corinth that to turn this mess around, you need to approach communion with remembrance of Jesus and examining yourself. Do this in remembrance of me. You should examine yourself to fix the disunity, to fix the greed, the selfishness, the indifference to faith, the making a mockery of what should be a deeply holy, deeply significant spiritual moment, to fix it up, to turn it around. We need to remember Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me, said Jesus, and examine ourselves. Communion requires us to remember Jesus and examine ourselves. Communion requires us to remember Jesus and examine ourselves. And Paul repeats the words of Jesus as part of his instruction to the church to do this in the remembrance of me. And there's a, a wonderful website. It's free. There's no subscription. There's no cost associated to it. Um, but it's just biblehub.com. And I use this an awful lot. It's a wonderful resource. Uh, and the depth of information there is just fantastic. It's a true, truly wonderful resource that I have. But I was able to go on there this week and look up the word remembrance and get into the Greek word of it. Um, I don't know this just off the top of my head. It's because there's a website that lets me do this for free. So when if I say this, please don't mistake this to being I'm a genius. It just means that I've got access to a computer. Okay. I'm not going to lie. I was kind of hoping people were like, oh, no, we thought you were just brilliant. But everyone just kind of nodded along. Oh, yeah. You've been listening to Megan too much. All right. Remembrance, the Greek for this, and hopefully I'll get this pronunciation right, anamnesis, anamnesis. And the definition that I have here is to bring to mind to properly deliberate recollection done to better appreciate the effects, the intended results of what happened. Active, self-prompted recollection, especially as a memorial or a memorial sacrifice, to bring to mind to bring to mind, to better appreciate the effects of what happened, to think about something, think about the intended results, 
to get your mind there, to appreciate what's going on. This is the instruction, is to appreciate Jesus, is to think about Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. Bring this to your mind. Recollect this. Appreciate the effect of this. And what is it that we should remember? This is the instruction. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, what does this mean? What should we have in our mind as we prepare ourselves for communion? Well, the first thing is possibly the most obvious answer, and that is just the incredible love of God. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this with the thoughts in your mind of the incredible love of God. Do this in your mind as we're getting ready to approach communion, as we're getting ready, as we will do in just a few moments, to take that bread and to take that cup. In our minds, let's have the promises of God that he has made to believers. Let's have in mind the challenging teachings of Jesus that he has showed us a better way to live. Let's have in our minds the reality of eternity. Let's have in our minds just how lost we were in sin. Let's have in our minds how much we desperately need a savior. Let's have in our minds how devastating being separated in our relationship with God really is. And if this is in our minds, it pulls us all the way to the cross. We're on the cross. The love of God was demonstrated when Christ died for us. It was on the cross that we can see the, full, uh, the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. It's on the cross that we see that the better way to live that Jesus taught us about is possible. That our eternity is secure because of the cross. That sin and death have been defeated once and for all because of the cross. That Jesus became the ultimate savior, the only one that was worthy. And we no longer have to live separated from God all because Jesus obediently went to the cross. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And if we spend time remembering this with these thoughts in our mind, with our focus being pointed there, it has to change our hearts. Heart transformation has to happen. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. We're announcing as we partake in the bread and partake in the cup, we're announcing the love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross. We're announcing that the promises of God are fulfilled in him. We are announcing that our eternity is secure, that sin is broken, and that Jesus truly is the only Savior so that we don't have to live separated from the Father anymore. And the Christian faith is hinged on the cross. Paul says elsewhere in the Bible that we preach Christ crucified. It is the cornerstone moment of our message that the death and resurrection of Jesus are at the very basis of our faith and consequently our entire worldview. And as we remember and consider all that the cross means to heed the words of Jesus. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my body, beaten, whipped, scourged. This is my body, stripped naked, disgraced, in public, smashed onto two pieces of wood with nails driven right through his hands, right through his feet, for you. It is appropriate, it is right that you and I take this personally. This is my body given for you. And to consider the cross, the pain, the humiliation that Jesus went through and to think I deserve that is an absurd reaction. To have the, the casual approach and the casual reaction that the Corinthians had 
absolutely mind-boggling that this is how they would respond to the message of Jesus, is casually, is kind of, sort of, is half-hearted. But instead, remembering and reflecting on the cross should grow our appreciation for who Jesus is and what he did on the cross for us. Communion teaches us to value the cross. And Paul quotes the words of Jesus, telling him to remember him. And he also tells the church that they should examine themselves. You should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. To examine would, you know, kind of mean to test the quality of something. Whether it be to test the quality or the purity of a precious metal, it would be to prove its worth. It's to ask the question, is it what's being advertised? As I think about this and... Hopefully you would think the same thing is how anyone could remember the cross in this way and have an honest, deep examination on what all this means for them and conclude anything except overwhelming gratitude confuses me no end. As I think about the love of God, as I think about what Jesus went through on the cross, and I remind myself, he did this for me, examining my heart, examining just how messed up I am and how much I desperately don't deserve this, and still, he did it for me. I think the only appropriate response is an overwhelming sense of gratitude. And that would be the second thing today is communion teaches gratitude. And just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, taking my daughter Esther, she's seven, um, and she is a little burst of sunshine every which way she goes. I know, right? And um, I took Esther to go get some frozen yogurt. And we go, we get it. And if you've ever done frozen yogurt, you know the drill. You do the handle, you get it yourself, and then you tell the nice people that work there how many toppings you have. And as a parent, you have to, you know, put a cap on it. You're only going to get two. Or if you're a grandparent, you only get five. <laughs> so I took Esther, and she got a bunch of gross combinations. It was like coconut this and mint that and Oreo, and it was horrible. But it's what she wanted. And so we get it, we pay, and then we go sit outside and they had some chairs set up and she put hers down on the chair and before she'd taken a bite, she tipped the chair and the whole thing, plop. And in that moment, I had a split second decision. Is this a teaching moment or am I gonna get her another one? Now, I got her another one But let me say this, if I was there with the boys, it would have ended up as a teaching moment, but I was there. <laughs> but I was with the princess and she has a way. So I went and got her another one, I went inside and we did the same disgusting combination that she had before and the same weird stuff that she wanted on there and I go to pay the guy and it was the owner of the store that was there and he goes, don't worry about it, it happens all the time. And I said to Esther, and we, you know, of course, thanked him and showed a great appreciation. And I sat down with Esther and still had a teaching moment. Come on, somebody. And I said, I said, Esther, we're going to keep coming back here because the way that guy, he treated us right. He didn't have to do that. We're going to keep coming back. She ended up telling Megan that daddy says we have to go get frozen yogurt every week <laughs> because the man was nice to me. But gratitude. I was truly grateful for this guy, and I meant that, you know, as we're going to keep going back there. That man has won our business now. Gratitude. That's a silly example about frozen yogurt. How much more the Savior of the world?
I, uh, I started a habit a, a few years ago. Um, something that Megan introduced to me was uh, every year around December time, start praying and thinking about the word for the upcoming year. You know, a single word and just believing that that's going to be uh, a point of growth, a point of change, an area where you want to stretch in. And uh, a few years ago, uh, the word that landed on was prayer. And I really sort of thought, and you know, through seeking the Lord, that this was a, a word where he was encouraging me to go deeper in my relationship with, in prayer. And so one of the things that I started doing, um, you know, with this idea of seeking out a single word is that I'll try and find 12 books on whatever the word is and then try and get through one a month for that year. And so I ended up for that year reading a whole bunch of books on the subject of prayer. And one thing that was consistently said in these 12 books of prayer from different church traditions, a bunch of different authors, and one thing that continually came up was these authors would tell us that Christians don't pray thanksgiving and gratitude enough. And the authors, and this was consistent. This is not, you know, I read one book. I mean, this really was. I read a number of these books on prayer, and they were all pointing to the same thing as that as believers, we don't spend enough of our prayer time just thanking God for who He is, what He's done, what He's doing, how He's moved, how He's continuing to move, what we believe He's still doing in our lives. We don't spend enough time in prayer thanking God for something. And the reality is we will never run out of things to thank God for. But back to Corinth. And from this whole mess, Paul saying that doing communion properly, there's a few things that he's expecting to change. So if we think about the problems that the Corinthian church and Chloe's household have brought to Paul, and Paul's saying that the remedy to this, what's going to fix this, is taking communion properly. There's a couple of things I think we can point to and say, okay, this is something interesting for us to take and apply for ourselves. Things we become when we share communion properly, number one, is we become humble. We become humble. Approaching communion correctly, approaching communion with the posture that Paul is telling us to, remembering Jesus, examining ourselves. We become humble. Remembering Corinth, it was the rich that were abusing the, the idea of a communion meal. It was the rich that were, uh, you know, that they were getting there early and treating it just like every other Greek feast. But they now needed to change how they felt about their fellow believers. It's not time, it's not just about me. It's not just time for me to indulge. Paul is inviting them to start looking at the other people that make up the body of believers and inviting them to care about these people. For the rich, who this correction is addressed to, that meant them taking on an air of humility and becoming humble. Second thing, we become when we share communion properly is caring. Is caring. The rich people, again, that Paul is given an uppercut to, they're being told you have to care about your fellow believers, the poor among you. You have to care about the poor people that are a part of your community of faith. You have to care. Paul is, Paul is telling us very bluntly, it is not right to just go through Christian life and go through Christian faith without giving any concern to the people around us, without giving any concern to the other people that make up our church, to give any concern to, to people that God has put in our, in our path. Third thing, when we, things we become when we share communion properly is we become distinct. I was going to say weird, but I changed my mind. We become distinct. To adopt what Paul is saying, 
for the Greeks, for the Corinthians, meant breaking social norms. Social norms in that time, they don't care if the poor people turn up late. They don't care if the poor people get to eat or drink or not. We're here for us. There's a culture, there's a set of etiquette, there's how this all should go, there's a way that this should all run. And now Paul is saying, no, 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 no. How the world does this doesn't work for you. Doesn't work for you. You're going to do this differently. You're going to care about people that other people don't care about. The wealthy would have expected just to carry on as if there was a regular Greek feast, and they did. Why should they care about the poor members of the church? Because God leveled the playing field. We're here together as brothers and sisters. This is a family meal. This is not an exclusive club. This is a family meal. And God has leveled the playing field. Despite what society says, despite what the world labels that they are putting on people, the Lord has leveled the playing field and invited people to the family meal. And the instruction for the rich is to give dignity and respect to everyone and anyone. And this is the reason that Christians should stand out. This is why we should stand out. Christians will stand out either way. I hope that we stand out for loving people and treating them right. I hope that believers stand out because of the way that we show love, respect, honor, dignity to anyone and everyone that the Lord brings across our path. How much more so within the four walls of this room. Treating, loving people, doing right by them. Luke 6, 32. This isn't a verse that specifically speaks to communion, but this is some teaching of Jesus that came to my mind and I thought was important to share today. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. Communion teaches us to share God's love for people. Communion teaches us that the love that God has for people is the kind of love that we should have for people. And as we approach communion right, humility starts to stir up. We start to take on those humble qualities. We start to become caring. We start to become distinct for the right reasons. The instruction from Paul is that this is what's going to fix disunity, greed, selfishness, and indifference to the cross. You must be compassionate, just as your father is compassionate. A correct approach to communion was Paul's method of righting the wrongs this church in Corinth was experiencing by examining our heart towards the rest of the church, remembering who Jesus was, what happened on the cross. And when Jesus said, for you, it wasn't just for one, but it was for all. It's right, it's appropriate, it's correct. The when we read the words of Jesus, when we hear them spoken, is my body broken for you. It is right, it is correct, it is appropriate that we take that personally, personally. It's also right and appropriate and correct to look around this room, see somebody else and say, this was for you, and for you, and for you. 
And if that's on our minds and if that's in our hearts, it'll change how you feel about the people around you. This was his body. It was broken for that person over there. It was broken for that struggling person there. It was broken for that person that his life is all different colors are messed up. It was broken for that person that's been in church since they were a kid and they've never strayed too far from the line. Broken for you. To the best of my knowledge, never in 2,000 years of church history has it been commonplace or encouraged broadly for Christians to celebrate and partake in communion alone. To the best of my knowledge, it's always been a community activity. It's always been a group thing that you've done as we've gathered together. To the best of my knowledge, it's never been taught just to be by yourself somewhere and take communion. I'm not going to stand up here and say it's wrong or it's evil, but there is definitely an understanding that this is something that is done together and celebrated and done together. And also in 2,000 years of church history, I don't believe it's ever been taught that communion just needs to be done once. But it's a repeated action. The frequency may change. Some churches may have different traditions, but... To the best of my knowledge, for 2,000 years, churches have been teaching this is something that needs to be done on a recurring basis. This needs to happen again. The communion we partake in today doesn't mean we don't have to take communion again another time. It's kind of like the kids when they put up a fight saying they don't need to take a shower today because they took one yesterday. When I was in uh, youth ministry as a youth pastor, I would say to the leaders regularly, that we've got these students for two hours a week. The world has them for a lot longer. We need to make this count. We need to make this count because just like the students, and if it's good for teenagers, it's good for adults, life has a way of getting us to devalue the cross. Life has a way of getting us to minimize our gratitude for what Jesus did for you and for me. Life has a way of getting us to stop caring about the people around us. Life has a way to get us to be like the Corinthians and be selfish and casual towards the things of God. Life has a way of getting us to refocus and reorientate our life away from God. We did communion. We shared communion together seven days ago. Seven days ago, we shared communion. And I would guess that almost everyone here, if not everyone here, in the last seven days, you've had feelings of not belonging. In the last seven days, you've had feelings that your life is small and insignificant. In the last seven days, you've had feelings that you don't have hope to grab onto. And those are the main things we talked about last week. That you do belong. Your life is a part of something much bigger than yourself. And that we have great reason for hope. And I would guess that in the past week, many of us forgot all about it in just seven days. That's why we keep coming back to the cross. And we keep coming back, remembering him. Do this in remembrance of me. This is why we keep examining ourselves to make sure that our hearts are right as we come to remember how amazing Jesus is and what he did for you and what he did for me. we're going to go back into a time of worship and the reason we're doing it this way and the reason we wanted to take some time is that I don't want to just 
tell you, do this in remembrance of me. I want you to have a moment where you can remember him. You can think about the cross and you can reflect on the cross and you can reflect on the goodness of God and the love of God and how amazing it is to be forgiven by him. I didn't just want to say to you, examine yourself. I want you to have a chance to examine and think like, okay, Lord, where in my heart do I need to change? Lord, what, what are you challenging me with today? So I want to invite you to stand as we go back into a time of worship. I'm going to pray. We're going to have a time of worship and then we're going to share communion together. So come on, would you stand as we pray? Lord, we're here, ready to meet with you. Lord, I believe I've said what you wanted me to say today, and now I turn back to you, and I say, Lord, speak to your people. Lord, bring to their mind what they need to be brought to their minds, Lord. Lord, help them remember you. Help them recollect you. Help them appreciate what you did 2,000 years ago on that cross. Lord, as they get ready to do this in remembrance of me, to take communion in remembrance of you, help them remember in this moment. Help them dwell on your love and your goodness. How amazing it is that you sent a savior. Lord, as they examine themselves, Lord, challenge them like this is where your heart needs to turn towards me. This is where your heart needs to change. You need to love and care for the people around us. Lord, bring challenges to us today. Bring comfort to us today. Bring hope to us today. As we remember you and examine ourselves, Lord, speak to your people. In Jesus' name, come on, everybody. Let's have an incredible time of worship together. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. If you would like to visit our church at any point, we've got live Sunday morning services happening every Sunday at 10 a.m. You can also follow us on social media to jump into the conversation online. Have a great week.